read through our passage for this morning. And this is vital. You come to hear the word of God. I would just give you a couple maybe previews or helps as you listen to the text this morning. One, just drawn from Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. She says, the Lord kills, in verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, or the realm of the dead, and raises up. Uh, Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. You're going to see God bringing down and raising up. Not necessarily resurrecting from life, but bringing people down from their high position and bringing somebody, Samuel, slowly upward. The other thing I'll I'll alert you to is consider Eli's eyesight. In the beginning of chapter 3, he's going blind. In chapter 4, he is blind. Why is that information in the text? There's a lot left out. Why is that included? So I'm going to start reading in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was still boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she was up, when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these pe- from all these people. No, my sons, it is no no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel grew, continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. Only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the, to the, in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel and said, here I, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. 
So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. It was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not, pay, not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 
Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, please. Lord, we just come before you this morning and just um, as we just hear that text that, Lord, the words that you say would not fall to the ground but would be bound up in our heart and that we would stay close to you, Lord. We confess we have drifted from you as a people. We have taken you for granted. We have um, ceased to many times give you the, the glory that you deserve for the good that comes in our life. And run to you only when there is sorrow. Lord, help us to repent of that and to come to you again uh, at all times. Um, Lord, we do pray for a closer walk with you. Uh, We pray that we would um, have a tender heart towards one another, that we would look for those who are weak, who are sick, who are downtrodden, and minister to them as a church, that we would... um, Uh, look eagerly to memorize your word that we would apply it in our lives and lord we we just we we come before you and ask you to help us uh, help us uh, with that and as we as we embrace the spirit that you provided so graciously to us lord we pray for our time in samuel this 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 uh, spring we pray that you would continue to um uh, drive RJ to minister the word with power and, 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 and force uh, and application that we would internalize it, that we would, uh, be, it would become a part of us, that we would, um, we would glory in your word in, in, through this. Lord, we pray for our Sunday school classes that are starting today. Uh, we pray for Howard's class on 10 Lies About God. We pray that that would be a, a, a great time of, of him just sharing um, from his study what, um, what he has learned and that our, or the ears of those in the class would be receptive to that. Uh, we pray for the class that I and, and Steve, or Steve and I are teaching um, on the Passion Week. Lord, just pray that you would uh, work through us, through the Spirit, that we would, um, we would communicate what you want us to communicate and that uh, people would leave uh, with a, uh, a greater depth of, of love for what you accomplished on the cross and then your resurrection. Um, we pray again as we uh, approach uh, Easter coming up next month now, that we would, our hearts would be, we would have cross-centered focus on uh, preparing for, uh, for, for uh, Resurrection Sunday, and that uh, you would... Uh, just prepare us for that as well. Lord, we, we, we pray for those in our, our body who are, who are sick. We pray for Nikki Barrett, struggling with cancer. Lord, that you would, this, just this constant lifelong problem, Lord, you would, you would uh, embrace and heal her. And we ask, we ask that of you, Lord, uh, with humility. We pray for Jackie Sherwood. Uh, and Ed, by extension, just with the constant pain, the constant um, endless uh, struggle, um, and then Ed being ministering to her with all his responsibilities and having issues himself. We lift, we lift that little family up to you. Uh, we pray for Judiana with her infected eye, Lord, just if you would come upon her and just heal her of that, we would be uh, most... Just, it would be so wonderful, Lord, but just give us patience as, as, we work, as she works through this um, with Nikki and with, um, uh, with the doctors. 
Um, I pray for my brother-in-law, John, who is recovering from a severe fever out in Washington, does not know you, Lord. Please, uh, we pray for it. salvation would come to that family. And we pray, um, lastly, for those who are struggling in some way in a relationship, struggling with depression, struggling with the loss of a loved one, struggling with uh, just uh, the, the pressures of life. And uh, Lord, we just help us to uh, be sensitive to people that are in need of whatever that need is. And Lord, we just lift all these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you were drawn into the story with the reading from 1 Samuel earlier. I would encourage you heartily to be reading that text as we go. Five to seven is the text for next week. So if you, that gives you enough time, if you've got seven days till next Sunday, to travel through those chapters as well. You might have picked up, it's a heavier passage today. There's probably more of an emphasis on how God brings down than what he's doing to raise up. So that's your warning. <laughs> that's where we're going. But we need times to grapple with the judgment of God. That's what we're doing this morning. I love it when the text of the songs intertwines with the text of the sermon and the, really the, the message from the word of God. And we've already, the, the, really the theme has already come up in what we've sung this morning with sight. I think it'll come back again as we continue singing later this morning. How is your vision this morning? As you arrive here today, how's your sight been? And the angle that I mean with that is how are you interpreting what, light, what has happened to you these last few days, this last month? How are you understanding things? Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A big part of being faithful through this journey of life and following Christ is not just seeing things clearly around you, but interpreting them in light of what you cannot yet see. So really, when I ask, how has your sight been? It's more, how has your interpretation of life been? How have you been thinking through the events that have happened to you? And maybe even more to the heart of that, what glasses have you put on in order to see those events rightly? Are you looking at those events through the text of Scripture? That is the only way that you're going to understand things rightly. And I don't mean understand in the sense that you are able to get into the throne room of God and know exactly what he's doing and why. But that you're able to receive the events of life from the providential hand of God by faith, knowing that he is still at work. That's at the heart of it. And sadly, as we look at the text this morning, what do we see? We see an ailing man who is losing touch with God's revelation. And as a result, he is failing as a judge among God's people. And he's failing as a father of his family. 
God works to bring down and raise up. Let's see God's work of judgment and exaltation as we consider the message of 1 Samuel 2, 3, and 4 this morning. And the, the emphasis from really from 1 Samuel 2, 12 to the end, there are glimpses of Samuel through this, but the emphasis is that God works against the faithless as we look at the end, middle and end of chapter 2. That's what he's doing. It might not be evident at first. When we dive into 1 Samuel 2, into the middle, what do we see? We see a family that is taking advantage of the sacrificial system. It is so bad that they have a fork guy. And whatever family shows up to offer a sacrifice, this fork guy is on the prowl. And I think you have the repetition in verse 14. Why all these words, the pan, kettle, cauldron, pot? It didn't matter what the family did or where they tried to do this. As they came to this central place in the nation and sought to offer a sacrifice to God and then do what accompanied it, have a time of feasting on that sacrifice, as they sought to do that, the sons of Eli were on the prowl. They were on the watch. They had their fork guy ready in order to take advantage of this family. Didn't matter what they were doing, where they were cooking, when they came to this place, they were going to be taken advantage of because this family wanted the best of the meat and they wanted it even before the sacrifice had really taken place. So this idea of before the fat was being burned, God had a process for them to follow when they were offering a sacrifice. And Hophni and Eli, men who were worthless and did not know God, were nevertheless over the proceedings and taking full advantage of what was happening. In other words, they didn't care about God. They didn't care about what these people were trying to do. They were there to take advantage and to get the best for themselves. And so they used force, if necessary, to pull away. I would highlight, though, it's not just that these two men had gone off on their own. Just to give a quick reference to chapter 4, verse 18, when Eli dies, how is he described? He's old and heavy. There's participation on the part of these men's father in what they're doing. They're taking the fat for themselves and their father is fat. There's a direct correlation there. It's not just that he has lost touch with reality that might be true. It's not just that these boys are now stronger than he that might be true, but he is participating in some way in their blasphemous behavior. And God sees that and will hold him account, hold him to account. There is mixed within chapter two, there are times where it goes back to Samuel. And so verse 18, Samuel's ministering before the Lord as a boy. Every once in a while he gets to see his parents his parents have this growing family. God is blessing Hannah and Elkanah. The boy Samuel, verse 21, is growing in the presence of the Lord, but then it's back to Eli. He's very old. He keeps hearing all that his sons are doing. It's not just that they are taking advantage of the religious system of Israel. It's not just that they have these infractions on the public side. 
in the worship of the nation, not just liturgical sins, but it's also moral failure of these men as well. Immorality is so open that this is the talk of the people, and it comes back to Eli. And so he, and, and can't you read in this text as you get to, to, to verse 23 and after, can't you see the feebleness and the, maybe the desperation, but the, the weakness of this man? Why are you doing this? It's bad. And he does have a message here that they should hear. Perhaps when you get to verse 25, it's a little bit confused. What's he saying here? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? The, the point of what he's saying is, look, guys, you're messing with God. You're not going to, this doesn't end well. He's trying to communicate the severity of what they're doing. Now, if I'm going to go through all of this passage, there are going to be details that you might say, you never answered my question here. And if that's the case, you can always come and ask me afterwards. It doesn't mean that I'll have a great answer, but hopefully I've at least thought about it a little bit and we can talk. I'm trying to focus on the core message, though, of this text and bring that out to you. This is part of that core message. Why did these men not listen to their father? Well, the text tells us. God had decided to put them to death. And maybe you hear that and you want to push back against it. What kind of God is this? Their father is trying to warn them. Should God not then use this as a time to bring them back? Maybe you think even of God hardening the heart of somebody else in Scripture in the Old Testament. Who was it? Pharaoh. God was involved in the judgment of Pharaoh and really of the nation of Egypt. What you have here is men who have gone against God. They've sinned in the sight of the Lord, verse 17. It was a very great sin. They're treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. In a leadership position in the nation, these men were not just failing to do what God had called them to do. They were blatantly, publicly, in that leadership capacity, going against God's ways and making light of him. And God had decided to bring judgment against them. And I would just encourage you to hear this. This is a just act of God. He is responding to their sin and he's responding appropriately. Maybe you still push back against that. That I encourage you to think about something more personal to you. Maybe start by putting yourselves in in a family of Israel where you have taken one of your prized animals, you have made the long journey in order to honor God and to celebrate his goodness to you at a sacrifice. This is a living animal that you've cared for. It's a time of celebration. You can tell that your father's excited. This is a special event. He's given up a lot to make this happen. And yet in the middle of this, as you're journeying, as you're going to the place of worship, you pass by Hophni or Phineas. Whichever man you pass by is not with his wife. You try to avert the other's eyes from what's taking place. You proceed on your way, try to do your thing, but in the middle 
of the time you're, you're almost ready for the meal, the, the meat is cooking, cooking and along comes the fork guy. Before you're able to finish this time of offering the animal to God, they've come and they've stolen from you, threatened your father. Would you not along this process feel in your very bones the evil of what is taking place? Would you not want the justice of God to come and to make things right? Yes, I hope we long to see God granting forgiveness to those around us. I hope we pray for those who hurt us and long to see the saving hand of God work. But people of God, there's nothing wrong with longing for God to bring justice as well. There's nothing wrong with seeing evil and looking to God and saying, God, when? When will you make things right? Because this is so wrong what we're seeing. Do not lose sight of that either as you look at verse 25 and wonder perhaps at the choice of God. This is God's purview. It is his choice to make. And so maybe you need to see in that warning for yourself. God is preparing to change the human power in Israel. You see that happening. But you see that with the help of Scripture and with someone encouraging you to look at the work of God. And I would just remind you, seeing it that way is still a choice of seeing it by faith. This is what God is doing, and we, we, we decide to believe that, I hope, by faith. Without this interpretation from Scripture, the Israelite who's in the middle of this does not yet see the work of God to bring about that change, to remove the evil servants, and to bring the ready servant of Samuel. So God is doing this, but much of Israel might not yet know what God is putting into place. One man has said, growth seldom makes noise. God is bringing about growth in Samuel. He's setting up his future servant. Most people probably don't realize, though, what is happening. Can even go a step further. If you were to plan out the education of the next pastor of the church who would be the regular preaching guy, would you put him in a broken family like this? In a boarding school situation where there's an old man who is feeble, not just in body, but in spirit, whose sons are regularly involved openly in immorality. That's not the kind of family that you would put a person in in order to grow to the faith and be ready to lead God's people. And yet God is still working through all of that to bring Samuel to the point where he needs to be. And you have verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Is that not a testimony to the grace and goodness of God? There's more judgment. And so you see the end of chapter two, there's a man who comes to Eli, the man is unnamed. At first, there's a repetition of God's grace to, to Eli's family, a reminder of how Eli has this privileged position by God's working. 
And then there's the indictment, the identification of their offenses in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? This is talking to Eli. Why do you scorn these things? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. There's the charge. And then the judgment. And the judgment is severe. So bad that from Eli, his descendants, people would die early deaths. Instead of having this wonderful family business where they can just bring in all that they want, now they're just going to be looking for some kind of way to get bread. The end of the chapter, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. A great reversal. The judgment of God is thorough. But at the heart, you might have another question because God says in verse 30, I promise this, that the house of your father and your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, I'm not going to do that. And you might say, well, doesn't God keep his promises? And if you chase that back, you can look back in Exodus 27, 21, and 29, 9. God does make a promise to Aaron that his sons would have this privileged place. God keeps that promise. But it shifts from one line from Aaron to another. And so you might read that and say, well, doesn't God keep his promises? Now he's openly admitting he doesn't. No, that's not what the prophet is saying. What he's pointing out is you thought you had security. God can still keep his word, but he is fully removing you from this place of privilege. And now your family will be destitute and continuously under my hand of judgment how the mighty will fall. I think at the heart of this is a warning that we should hear because it's a warning that sounds a whole lot like Romans 1. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Now, Eli is different than we are. But it is entirely possible I think, for us to commit a very similar sin of honoring other things above God. And in this setting here in this text, should parents not hear, parents, it's entirely possible for you in how you treat your children to honor them above God. You might have your ear to the ground with news of the day, and one of the difficult areas for this is as your children grow and they make choices of their own, how do you stay connected to them and still show your love to them and still show the love of God to them if they depart from the faith and if they do that in perhaps even flagrant ways? And you're left as parents to decide how to stay connected because you want that relationship to endure but how to do so in a way that is still honoring to God. And one of the issues that's, it wouldn't take hard to uncover if you were to search for it, 
as with even just how to treat weddings. And so it's, I, I just, I draw out here that Eli had gone too far, and I think part of what shows that he went too far is that he was participating in what these men were doing in some way. He was benefiting from their theft. And so I encourage parents, there's a lot of pressure that you might face at times because the impression is at times that kids are more innocent, they have a better view of life, and sometimes they need to wake you up to reality. You're going to hear that or see that. And is there not a draw to make them happy and to be liked by your kids? Please, Look at the example of Eli and how far he went to honor his sons above God. And take that to heart. You have difficult choices at times ahead of you. The application of truth. Always honor God in those choices. And sometimes that might hurt. The consequences of honoring God might be very close to home. Your allegiance must be first to your Lord and those choices. Thankfully, when we get to chapter three, there is good news here. God is drawing Samuel to himself. He's raising up Samuel. We see his calling in verses one to 10. That word call happens 11 times between verse, from verse four to verse 10. He is calling Samuel. But there's also some commentary given at the beginning of the chapter. The word of the Lord is rare, and Eli's sight has begun to grow dim. Why is that mentioned? We understand that Samuel doesn't really know what's going on because verse 7 says Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That's not the same kind of statement and really indictment that's given of Eli's sons who do not know the Lord in chapter 2, verse 12. This, instead, he did not yet know the Lord. His relationship with God was not to that personal place yet, but we see that that is changing in the text before us. So that should be understandable. What is really not okay is Eli doesn't know what's going on. It takes him so long to figure it out. Because his eyesight is growing dim. His perception of God's work in the people of Israel is growing dim. That's my interpretation. That's how I'm understanding this text as it proceeds. If you want the evidence, then just keep listening and searching scripture as I go. But here's a man who's barely able to put things together. And yet he's the judge of Israel. I think God expects more from him. Eventually, though, Eli figures it out. And so you have in verse 10, and this is wonderful, the Lord came and stood. Now, God the Father is a spirit. I believe this is God the Son, pre-incarnate form, coming to speak with Samuel. There are times in the word of God where it be amazing to see what happened. Wouldn't it be amazing to see this conversation between the two of them? And yet, even with that amazement, that would quickly grow very heavy because the message that God has for Samuel is a heavy message. 
It's wonderful because God is breaking into a faithless nation to speak to his choice servant, so that's thrilling that God would do this. But the message itself is hard. Before we get to that message, though, I, I would encourage us to realize, again, this is interpretation, eyes of faith, put in the glasses of Scripture on. Again, this is God breaking into a faithless nation to work. The sad reality is that Israel is going the wrong direction. It's being led very poorly by Eli and his sons. God does not, he could bring judgment much sooner to these people. This is a kindness and mercy of God that he would come and speak to Samuel and start giving him his word. Israel has already put God off The nation is already in the process of turning away from God. It's a mercy of God to come and speak to Samuel and start to form him or continue forming him into his prophet. God bringing his word or message to sinful mankind is a mercy, especially when it's our sin that so often pushes him away, or when in our sin we suppress the truth. Here is God reaching out to humanity. It's a mercy. It's not something that Israel has earned. If anything, they've earned very different from God. The life-giving, merciful, loving, faithful God is continuing to work within this so often faithless nation. And so Samuel begins to serve as a prophet. And as I said before, it seems his first assignment is terribly difficult. Go to Eli and tell him, basically confirm the judgment that Eli's already heard. When you read verse 15, it's very possible to see that. I think very reasonable to see that. He lay until morning. It doesn't say he slept. You can just imagine this young boy just overwhelmed with the day that is before him. What he has to say to this elderly man. But he is faithful with some help from Eli. He passes on Eli to Eli God's message. And you have in verse 18, I mean, let's say you're the one explaining the text this morning and you get to verse 18 and Eli's response, it is the Lord let him do what seems good to him. How would you explain that? the best that I can say is this is confusing. We don't see Eli's response at the end of chapter two. And now we hear these words from Eli in chapter three, verse 18. It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. On the one hand, you might say, okay, this is a statement of faith. God is in control. He's going to do what is good. But then you think about the content of that message. What's missing from Eli's response? What's missing? Where, where, where's the repentance? Where's the change? Has he truly received what God has said? And maybe you could push back and say, no, God has confirmed this is the second time that God has communicated the judgment. Eli knows there's no changing this and he's just trying to accept it. Okay, you can take that position. But if you're in the same spot, I'd hardly encourage you to go further. Verse 
And I think the rest of the text will show that out. Samuel keeps growing and it's confirmed to all Israel that he's a prophet. So God has broken into this faithless nation and he's speaking directly to this servant that he's been cultivating. He's confirming Samuel's ministry and he's in the process of removing Eli's faithless line to raise up Samuel, his prophet. I love what is said towards the end of this chapter, verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him as God has called Samuel to do something difficult and yet special, his presence remains with him. Yes, it's hard. God has not left him. And that brings us to a very interesting chapter in 1 Samuel. You have verse 1, the, Lord, the word of Samuel came to all Israel, but then it's as if we have that on the board and we erase it and start fresh. That might be the case, but now on to the next story. But I assure you there's a connection. Israel goes out to battle the Philistines, doesn't go well. And so there's a question that is asked after this first defeat where 4,000 men die. The elders are asking it, the leaders of the nation, verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us? This is good theology. At the end, it's not the Philistines who won. It's why has God brought about this defeat for us today? That is a good question. What they do after that question is terrible, but it's a good question to ask. Why is it bad after they ask that question? Where do they go wrong? I want you to think about this. They ask a good, theologically informed question. How can they go so wrong between good question and action? Who answers the question? They do. They supply the answer to their own question. I want to read a couple verses from Deuteronomy, which these people had by this point. Deuteronomy 28, 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. That's Deuteronomy 28, 15. You go down to verse 25. One of the curses, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. They had the answer. And they didn't know it. Is this not one of the saddest things that people ask a good question? And they have the answer somewhere. And they ignore the answer, or maybe perhaps are totally ignorant of it. And they try to supply their own answer. And where does their own answer get them? The casualties go from 4,000 to 30,000. This is travesty. Because man is supplying his own answer. You want to see how it's even sadder than that? They carry with them to that next battle, the Ark of the Covenant. And what is inside the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets. 
the covenant itself. How was their vision? How was the vision of the elders of Israel? How was the vision of the people of Israel? They're flying blind. God has given them all that they need, but they're still going forth in blindness. And maybe you start to see the severity of the sin of Eli and his sons. It doesn't just affect their family, it affects the nation. The blindness that has been growing on Eli has been passed on to the people, and they're about to suffer dearly for it. One person has called this rabbit foot theology. The people go to, or send to Shiloh. They bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Ark is mentioned. You have call mentioned repeatedly in chapter four, or three. You have Ark mentioned repeatedly in chapter four. They bring the Ark. And with the Ark, these two other blind individuals, Hophni and Phinehas, they don't know that they're marching to their death. They should know, but they don't. Verse five. As soon as the ark comes into the camp, there's this mighty shout. The earth is resounding. The enemies over across the way are going, what happened? The ark has gone in. Oh, no. The scouting report is terrible. We know of these gods. Remember, they're speaking from ignorance to the Philistines. These are the gods who've rescued them before, have done mighty things in the past. And so what is their response? It's also man-centered. Be men. At the end of the day, perhaps this is a bit flippant, but Philistines are more men than Israel. And the strength of the men of Philistia wins out over the strength of the men of Israel. God is behind all of that. Again, it's terrible. So they fight. It's disaster. There's slaughter. Again, I warned you, it's a heavy message today. But God will not be controlled by faithless people. He will bring his judgment at the proper time. Okay, it's Israel, it's his chosen people. He will not be controlled. He will not be put in a box and used to their advantage when they need him. That is not how God works. Rabbit foot theology is nothing new. And consider what God is willing to allow in order to bring judgment. What does it look like? What it looks like to the nations is that the God of Philistia is stronger than the God of Israel. God can handle that, by the way. And we'll see that in chapters 5 through 7. What God has said to Israel matters They ignore and forget it at their own dear and great cost. I also want us to see here, though, that when the people of God fails to understand and know God, that is also passed on to other people around them. So the Philistines, coming away from this battle, conclude that their God is mightier than the God of Israel. 
And I think at the heart of that is Israel did not rightly know God and follow God, and now others around them are wrongly understanding God too. Also, the people of God ignore his warnings of coming judgment at their own great risk. Perhaps you're here and this is a heavy message and you're trying to work through your view of God. And what you're hearing is that God is a God who's willing to bring heavy judgment against his people. What I also want you to hear, though, is that God is a God who is merciful, who went and spoke to Samuel, who is raising up Samuel to be his prophet, and who is in the work still to lead his people through Samuel. Don't miss the mercy of God in all of this. And perhaps it's a mercy to you, even this morning, to be hearing of the God of Scripture, to be hearing of the one true God, Don't turn away from God's revelation, from him speaking of himself so quickly. You must hear and learn of this God of the Bible. He is the one and only God, and you turn from his revelation at dear risk and cost to yourself. But I think also the people of God should also recognize that God is not to be put in a box and brought out only when we need him to get us back onto the track that we think we should be on. We don't control God. He's not your lucky charm to be pulled out when you most need him. The, the, the time and only time to pray is not when you're, you've been working on the car for 10 hours, you can't figure everything out. You've already thrown three wrenches across the driveway and now you're praying out to God in anger that he hasn't helped you find the problem already. That is not our God. He's the one who's controlled it from the beginning and is trying to reveal to you your anger problem. That's God. Providentially working in the problem of your car or the sound system or whatever else it may be. And so death reigns as glory fades in the nation of Israel. And this is astounding at the end of chapter four. By this time, Eli is hearing what happens, but we have very clearly, he has gone blind, verse 15. And I would just encourage you to see there is really no reason to mention that other than I think it's showing his perception is gone. But there's another detail. Verse 13. What is Eli doing as he waits to find the news? Eli's sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Here's the amazing thing. End of chapter 2, I don't see any trembling from Eli. No response listed. Chapter 3, confirmation of God's coming judgment. I don't see any trembling from Eli, but now that the ark might be taken, he starts to tremble. And maybe at first you think, oh man, there's a guy who really cares. No, he cares because his idol might be lost. That's why he cares. Eli, you should have been trembling a long time ago. Now you start, you're blind. You've missed it.
It's not until the end he hears of the people being defeated, his sons being killed, but then he hears that the ark of God has been captured. The writer here is very specific. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli falls over backwards. His neck is broken and he dies. But then the text goes on and it talks about his daughter-in-law. And the account both of Eli and of Eli's daughter-in-law show these two people believed the glory of Israel is tied to what? To the ark. So when the ark is gone, the glory of Israel is gone. The glory has departed. Ichabod, no glory. That is still in process. I think we kind of keep going on that part of the narrative with next week. But a little bit of a preview there. The glory has never departed. And yet it has in some ways. It has because the people have been living terribly. So there's more to say there for sure. What we do see is that God has brought down the family of Eli, as he said. And God is raising up, although he's been ignored, right? What did we say, in, what did the text say in 1 Samuel 4.1? The word of Samuel came to all Israel. He's been ignored. He's firmly established as a prophet of God to all the nation. The elders ask, what is wrong? Where should they have gone? They should have gone to the covenant, and they should have gone to God's prophet. God had given them all that they needed in order to be faithful through this. But blind Eli, blind Eli's sons are leading in some way, and so there's this terrible defeat. God brings down to death, and he raises up. There are several ways we could go here. Where I'd like to draw your attention, though, is to something said about Eli in verse 18. At his death, what is his death caused by? His neck was broken and he died for, the man was old, so there's, he was frail and heavy. It's very interesting. The word used for heavy there is glory. Glory is something that's significant, that's weighty. And I can't help but think that there's, a, there's something being said here. What contributed to Eli's own death? The fatness that he had acquired from his sons who were abusing the sacrifices. What he had idolized in the food had contributed to his own death. Where is your sight, O Israel? How is your sight? Are you seeing things rightly? And maybe more to the point, Israel, where is your glory? They had shifted 
to think that their glory was the ark. They had forgotten the word of God. They had left God in their practice and now they suffered dearly. Oh, church, where is your glory? It's automatically tied to your sight and to your faith. Where is your glory? Baraka, where is our glory? As we gather, what is our glory? Is it not this, Christ among us, who is the hope of glory? Is not the thing of which we should be most excited? Is it not at the heart a person? And really, to say it more fully, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God who has, in his mercy, spoken to humanity, in his mercy, visited humanity, and in his mercy, brought rescue to humanity. Is not that our glory? And yet, if we allow it, so many things can come in and start to, as cataracts, blind our vision, and we transfer our understanding of glory to something else, and no matter what else we go to, it's less glorious than God. And those idols will become the means of our downfall. So people of God, where is your glory? I hope at your heart as we gather, I hope that there is an excitement to show to each other and to those who would visit among us, Christ, he is our glory. Let us never forget that and constantly keep that before us. God, thank you for this text. It's heavy, it's hard to think about sin and consequences. Blindness creeps on us so quickly. Unbeknownst to us, even in a week's time, we can walk so far from you. And so humble us through your word, Humble us through the loving, truthful words of others here. And help us to be those who live by faith, who are assured of what your word has promised and go forward by conviction of things that we cannot yet see, but things that we have heard because we have read them and we believe your revelation that you are true and you keep your promises. It is such a fight to see the world around us and our own hearts rightly according to your word. Help us in this endeavor. And oh, may it be true that our glory as we gather rests solely and ultimately in you. For there is none like you. And so we add our voices to the voice of Hannah. 